0: privilege to turn to God's word together this morning, and we're turning again to Hebrews chapter two. I'd love to have you follow along with us. and if you uh, don't have a Bible, you can use the one in front of you in the pew. The passage can be found on page 1002. As you're turning there, just as a brief review, the author of Hebrews has been arguing, over the course of chapters one and two, that Jesus is better than the angels. And last week, the author of Hebrews used Psalm 8 to demonstrate that when the world comes to, the world to come arrives and when judgment happens, it's not angels who have authority, but man. And of course, not mankind in general, we can look around and see that mankind in general is not crowned with glory and honor, but one man in particular, that man Jesus Christ. He is the one who reigns. His word is the word we must listen to if we're going to escape death and judgment. So He is supreme. He is better than the angels, and in fact, as we saw, He is better than everything. But that's where we were last week. If you were a typical first century uh, educated man or woman, verse 9 would likely have seemed completely contradictory to you. Because the author of Hebrews told us that Jesus' path to victory and supremacy came through suffering even to the point of death. But for God to raise someone up by making him take on a human body, suffer and die even a shameful death on the cross seemed contradictory. Why would the one who is the greatest of all be required to suffer and die? Remember what Paul said in 1 Corinthians. He said, a crucified Messiah is foolishness to the Greeks, and it's a stumbling block to the Jews. And we we still ask questions like this ourselves as well. Why did God have to make his son die? Wasn't there a better way? Couldn't God just have forgiven our sins since he is God? And so the author of Hebrews is now going to explain why it was the perfect plan in the wisdom of the sovereign God that Jesus' path to glory should be through suffering and death as a man. If you would follow along with me, let's read starting at Hebrews 2 verse 10 and going to the end of the chapter. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, and bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subjects to lifelong slavery. For surely it was not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself suffered when tempted... He is able to help those who are being tempted. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you that it is your power. It is your spirit speaking to us. So I pray that you would comfort us, encourage us, challenge us, and give us joy in your salvation. We pray this through Christ's name. Amen. I wonder if you would imagine for a minute that you are sitting down ready to write an essay for your English class. Now, maybe for some of you, all you have to do is think back two days ago, and you were sitting at your laptop writing your essay. For some of you, you may have to think back 20, 40, 60 years ago, and you were not sitting at a laptop to think of what it was like to write an essay. And as you write this essay, if your experience in English class was anything like my experience writing an essay, you could have the best ideas in the world. You could have some killer transition sentences. But, in order to get a good grade, you knew you had to start with a clear thesis statement. If you didn't have a clear thesis statement at the beginning, your ideas could wander, your audience didn't know where you were going, and of course, as a student, worst of all, there would be red ink in the introductory paragraph, and your grade would be marked down. Well, if the author of Hebrews here were in English class, he would get an A by English class standards, because he gives us his thesis statement... His main point right away in verse 10. Look at verse 10 with me and you'll see that the main point of this passage is this. It was fitting, or as one translation puts it, it was entirely appropriate that God should bring many sons to glory by making Jesus, the founder of their salvation, perfect through suffering. In other words, far from being utter foolishness, It was actually the plan of God himself, the perfectly wise, perfectly sovereign and powerful God. It was his plan to bring salvation for his people by sending his son to become a man and to suffer and to die. In fact, the author tells us that it was suffering and death that God used to make Jesus perfect as the founder of our salvation. And you might stumble here and say, well, why did Jesus need to be made perfect? I thought he was perfect. And of course, there was nothing wrong with Jesus that had to be fixed. Don't think of this as something broken that needed to be cleaned up. Maybe have a different picture in mind. Maybe think of the person who has to go through a set of exams or a thorough training course in order to be prepared or to be suited for the task that he was called to. This verse is suggesting that it is through becoming man and living his whole life sinlessly, in obedience to God, going through suffering even to the point of death. That is how Jesus is made perfect or made complete or made suited for or made exactly what he needed to be for the work of salvation that God had planned. And so here's the author's main point right up front. Jesus, the Son of God, coming as a man, suffering and dying, is not just a way for us to be saved. It is the way that God in his sovereignty brings many sons to glory and that Jesus becomes crowned with glory and honor. Well, why? Okay, we've we've heard the main point. This is the perfect plan of the sovereign God. But why? Why was something as shameful as suffering and death the best way for God to save his people? And in verses 11 through 18, Hebrews gives us three reasons why this plan was the perfect plan. Unfortunately, the author makes them very clear for us. All we have to do is follow the text and look for the word for, F-O-R, which will give us reasons that Jesus' incarnation, suffering, and death accomplish our salvation. So let's work through the passage. Reason number one is the longest, and it comes in verses 11 through 15. Look at verse 11. You see, for he who sanctifies... And those who are sanctified all have one source, or we might say are all of one type, are all of one kind. Now, although there is a monumental distinction between Jesus and us, namely that Jesus is the one who does the sanctifying and his people are the ones who are sanctified, there is that huge difference. There is also a fundamental unity. By becoming man, Jesus becomes one of us. He becomes like us. And so without shame, he can call us brothers. Now, I know we want to think about this. Why is it that calling us brothers is so important? Being human is so important. Maybe you think of it this way. I know we have some dog lovers in our congregation. Maybe some of you are some of those who have the bumper sticker that says my dog was an honor roll student in obedience training school. But as much as you might love your dog... It would be inappropriate for you to consider your dog a brother or an equal or a fellow heir or something who has solidarity with you because there is a qualitative difference between you and an animal. Well, in the same way, there is a qualitative difference between the divine Godhead and us as mankind, between the creator and the creatures, and it would not be possible for the divine Godhead to call humanity his brothers in this sense of being one with them. But Jesus, while being fully God, takes on full humanity. And this is so important. We can often default into thinking of Jesus as God, and of course that's true. But we can't miss the fact that he's a real human with skin and blood cells who smelled sweaty and walked with dusty feet and got tired. He was a man like us. And the author of Hebrews is going to demonstrate or prove that Jesus was a man and prove that it was God's plan to have Jesus come as a man with three quotes from the Old Testament. He looks back to the Old Testament in three different passages to show that Jesus identifies as a human by calling fellow humans his brothers. You see this in verse 12. He says, "'Because we're all one, Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers.'" And he quotes in verse 12 from Psalm 22. Now, you may remember, if you think back to the Old Testament, that Psalm 22 was one of the psalms that Jesus said was about him. It's the psalm that starts out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But it goes on then, uh, and it turns to declare that God has become his salvation. He has rescued him. And then in the psalm, it says, I will tell of your name to my brothers, And the author of Hebrews says, see, Jesus told us that this psalm was about him, and in it he declares God's salvation to his brothers, which he can do, he can use that terminology without shame, because in God's good plan, he was human like us. Then in verse 13, the author quotes twice from Isaiah 8. The first verse emphasizes that Jesus was a human like us, and so he also put his trust in God like we are called to do. And secondly, he calls us children, I and the children God has given me. Now, just as a brief um, comment, because I hope some of you will look back at Isaiah 8 and look at the original context here, and if you do, you might notice that these two quotes are actually Isaiah talking about himself and his children. And you might say, well, wait a second, how is it that Hebrews takes words that Isaiah talks about himself and his children and says that Jesus is saying them, and says that this is what Jesus is saying? It might seem inappropriate or odd. But the whole passage in Isaiah 8 is clearly Isaiah speaking about his own situation in a way that doesn't apply fully to his own situation, but anticipates Jesus. Because the passage starts... Isaiah comes before King Ahaz of Judah. And the context is Assyria is about to attack Judah. And the question is, will God protect Judah? And Isaiah says, I will give you a sign, Isaiah, that God will save Judah. And here's the sign. Are you ready for the sign? The virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. See, yes, this is a word to Ahaz, but it's talking about Jesus. Jesus is the one who fulfills this in a way that never happened in Isaiah's day. And so Hebrews looks back at this and says, see, this whole thing is about Jesus. And it would be very appropriate for Jesus as that son, as that human son born of the virgin to say these words. They are more true of him than they were of Isaiah. And so... These three Old Testament quotations show that all along in God's sovereignty, the plan was for Jesus to be human and call his fellow humans brothers. Well, then in verses 14 and 15, look down at 14 and 15, we find out why Jesus becoming human was so important. We've heard that he is, we've heard it's God's plan. Why is that so important? And we find out that he partook of flesh and blood just like us, so that through death, He might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. And you see the author's point here, right? In order to destroy death, Jesus had to become a man and go through death. That was necessary in order for him to break death's power. So suffering and death were the way that Jesus, as the Son of God, could conquer death and bring many sons to glory. And we have such a thrilling description here of Jesus' work of salvation. I don't want us to miss it here. Jesus became man in order to die. And by dying, Jesus destroys the devil and his power of death. And in destroying the devil and the power of death, he delivers those who have been enslaved to the fear of coming death and judgment for their whole lives. I love this description of Jesus' salvation. And I know that many of us here have grown up in the church and we've heard the story of Jesus. We've heard the gospel thousands and thousands of times. And maybe we bring up images of of Sunday school flannel graphs or or pastel paintings of, of Jesus when we think of the gospel. But the author of Hebrews rescues us from thinking of the gospel in terms of flannel graphs here. He paints Jesus' salvation in its reality What Jesus accomplished was a powerful destruction of death that every one of us is subject to enslavement to and fear of so that his work changes the entire situation of my life if I trust in him. Picture the scene. Picture the scene of allied troops rolling into Auschwitz to liberate those who had expected to die in a prison camp. And you have a better idea of what Jesus offers. Jesus shatters the power of death and of evil and the devil. He offers freedom instead of slavery, hope instead of despair, life instead of death to all who would come in him. Or as Jesus himself puts it, he has come to bind the strong man and plunder his house. And what is it that Jesus plunders? He plunders us. We are his plunder if we have put our faith in Christ. We are the ones that he has stolen from the power of death. And made his, his possession. And I want us to pause as we read these verses and I want us to encourage and encourage us to respond by remembering how dire our situation is apart from Christ. For those of us, again, who have been Christians much of our lives, it's so easy to forget how great our danger is and was apart from Christ, how great our hopelessness is when death and judgment are the inevitable end of our lives. And if we forget this, we also lose the joy of our salvation. We lose the sense of worship that we have of Christ. And it's when we remember how dire our situation is apart from Christ that we can truly worship Christ and we can truly have delight and joy in Him. And if you don't know Christ, will you take seriously what this passage is saying? Will you take seriously that we should not be deceived? Apart from Christ, our condition is a dangerous one. Death and judgment under the power of the devil is our condition. But we have Jesus, who in God's wisdom became man in order to die. And through death, he has cracked death's grip over us. And he offers us life and freedom and hope through faith in him. This is reason number one why. It was God's good plan to send Jesus as a man through suffering and death so that through death he might defeat death. Well, when we come to verse 16, we get our second reason, our second for, F-O-R. We see it again in verse 16. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of his people see if Jesus is going to help humans he has to himself be human his goal was not to redeem angels his rede- his goal is to redeem the offspring of Abraham and i think it's important and just as a side note that the author of hebrews does not say the offspring of adam as if every person is saved in Christ automatically, as if this is a universal salvation. No, Jesus came to help the offspring of Abraham. He came to help those who were the recipients of God's promises. He came to help faithful Israel and all those who by faith are grafted into God's people and so become children of Abraham. But the author of Hebrews' point here is clear. Jesus became a man because only a man can represent man before God. And he became a man because only a man could take the punishment that man was due from God. Only a man could satisfy the wrath of God against the sin of mankind. And when we talk about a priest here, of course, we need to remember the Old Testament background here. In the Old Testament, the high priest was himself an Israelite, a Levite chosen from among the people to stand before God on their behalf on the Day of Atonement, and to sacrifice the goat of the sin offering on behalf of the people and their sins. And Jesus, in order to represent humanity and to make propitiation for their sins, that's, that's a big theological word, but just as a reminder, propitiation means to appease God's wrath against sin by taking away the judgment by taking away the offense. Jesus, in order to represent mankind, in order to take away the punishment for their sins, had to be human. The fact is, though, Jesus was not just a human high priest. He did this. He was able to represent mankind. But note that the offer of Hebrews says that because he suffered and went through death, he is also a merciful high priest and a faithful high priest. And we want to highlight these two words. Because stop and consider. The high priest who takes away your sin, the high priest who represents you before the throne of God, is not a hired gun. He's not a lawyer who is paid to represent a wealthy or high qualified client. He's not doing his job just because he was hired to do so. Jesus is one who takes the case pro bono, he takes it of his own will and free of charge. It's the only way we could have him represent us. And Jesus stands as a high priest who has been through what we have been through. And so he can stand and represent us not out of ignorance, but having gone through what we have gone through. He takes our case in such a way that he can have compassion on us. He cares for us. His love for us is an everlasting love. And so as you think of your Savior, as you think of the high priest that's standing before God on your behalf, Remember, never forget that he is a high priest who looks on you with mercy and compassion because he has walked as we have walked as a man. But he's not just merciful, he is also faithful in his servants to God. And I wonder if you'll stop and consider for a minute the 33 years in which Jesus faithfully obeyed God. We often think of Jesus and we think of his death and we think of what he went through on the cross, which is, of course, the climax. The climax. But in order to be qualified to save us in the first place, he had to live a perfect and sinless and obedient life. And so we're highlighting here, the author is highlighting here that Jesus was faithful over 33 years, an obedient, sinless, perfect high priest. He was righteous and innocent, so he was able to stand before God. He is righteous and innocent And so he is able to make propitiation for our sins. He is righteous and innocent. And because he was faithful, he can now credit his righteousness to our account. And so we find here the second reason that Jesus' goal was to help humans. And so he had to become a man in order to represent man before God. And because he suffered to the point of death, he is a merciful high priest and a faithful high priest who can take our case, stand before God on our behalf, and credit His righteousness to us. Well, we come to the third four in verse 18. And we have the final reason why it was entirely appropriate and good for Jesus to suffer as a man on His way to glory. And this final reason could not be more encouraging and more practical on a day-by-day basis for you and I. Because as we enter a new week, we're told by the author of Hebrews... For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help us when we are tempted. I think uh, about how important it is that Jesus is able to help us because he has faced temptation himself. When I was in seminary, my summer job for several summers was teaching sports camps. And I was hired to coach baseball, basketball, and soccer to preschoolers. Now, I have some experience in all three sports, soccer the least, but I have some experience in all, and you don't need very much experience to coach preschoolers. So I felt that I was well qualified to teach them the things they needed to know. But it was much to my surprise when in week three, I looked at my schedule and found I'd been assigned to teach fourth through sixth graders tennis. Now, I hadn't picked up a tennis racket in more than a couple times since I was 12, And of course, I did my best to coach tennis, but there were many things that I could not help them with because I was not a tennis player. I think the logic here is similar. Jesus himself has suffered and been tempted, and so he is now able to help you and I when we are tempted. Now here we have to stop and ask a question, though. How exactly does Jesus help us when we are tempted? We often hear this, but when temptation hits on a Wednesday afternoon, we're not exactly sure how Jesus helps us. And so, even though we know that He's supposed to help us, we're not exactly sure how to seek that help. And so, we may be left defenseless. Let me suggest that there are four ways that Jesus helps us when we are tempted. Four very practical ways that Jesus helps us in the face of temptation. First, And I think the thing that is probably uh, foremost in the author of Hebrews' mind here, Jesus both forgives our sin, the guilt that is against us, and he gives us his righteousness. He credits his righteousness to our account. See, because Jesus went through temptation, but he did it perfectly and sinlessly, and then he went to the cross and suffered and died on our behalf, his blood clears away our guilt and He credits to us His righteousness. You know, there are times when our failures keep us from obedience, when past sin haunts us and robs us of both the strength and the hope for the battle against temptation. When we face addiction, when we face sinful attitudes, we often get in a spiral That keeps going downhill. You know how it is when you wake up on the wrong side of the bed and the spiral keeps going as the the weight of what's on us continues to drive us into more sin and we we continue to sin. But see, Jesus cuts into the spiral. He forgives our past sin and He credits His righteousness to us through faith. And so, as we stand in our day facing temptation... We can know that our burden of past sin has been cleared away. It has been absolved by the blood of Christ. And we can also know that we stand before God in Christ's righteousness, in His righteousness. And that gives us encouragement and strength to face temptation, knowing we stand in this saving, redeeming Savior. This is a powerful help against sin. But second... Jesus also removes sin's power over us. And the passage has also told us that. He cracks sin's enslaving power against us. You know, apart from Christ, we have zero ability not to sin. Outside of Christ, the option of obeying God isn't on the table. But when we are brought to Christ, the slavery to sin is broken. And we are freed and enabled to obey God. When we face temptation, it often feels powerful. But if you are in Christ, the power that temptation threatens over you is a lie. Temptation and sin no longer holds enslaving power over you. And if I could just encourage you from my own personal life, this thought has probably been the most powerful help to me in recent years since I read this encouragement in a book on overcoming sin a few years ago. The thought that when we face temptation, we can remember that I don't have to obey this temptation anymore. I don't have to sin. Yes, apart from Christ, that was my only option, but now Christ has freed me from that. Sin, you may look alluring. You may look tempting. You may tell me that following my desires is the best way to go, but I don't have to do that anymore. I'm freed from that in Christ. Christ has broken that power over me. He has set me free. I can obey God He has freed me to do that. So Christ breaks the power of sin over us and gives us this encouraging help that in the face of temptation, we can say, no, I don't have to do that anymore. Christ has freed me to obey him. Well, third, Jesus offers an example of what obedience looks like. Jesus lived a perfect and sinless life as a man and so set an example showing us what obedience looks like. And now he invites us to follow his example. But I think it's important for us to note here that Jesus doesn't just show us an example of how to obey him. He does do that. But Jesus also demonstrates the reward for obedience. Jesus went through suffering and temptation. He obeyed God. And his reward was resurrection glory. And now Jesus stands like one at the finish line who's already finished the race and says, Here, if you keep going, if you keep running this race with your eyes fixed on me at the finish line, this is the prize for you too. Resurrection glory. And so in the face of temptation that might seem alluring, that might seem attractive and powerful, we have Christ who shows us how to obey and also shows us if you obey, here is where you end up. Here is the resurrection glory that is yours as you follow Christ. And so His example is so encouraging, such a help to us in the face of temptation. And fourth and finally, of course, Jesus gives us the power of His Spirit to dwell in us. Jesus doesn't just show us how to obey. He gives us His Spirit to live in us, to strengthen us to obey. And this is what Galatians 5 is getting at when it says, Walk with the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. What is our power against sin? It is Christ's Spirit living in us. He has given us His Spirit. He walks with us by His Spirit. And so as our eyes are fixed on His Spirit, as we walk daily in communion with His Spirit through prayer and in His Word, as we keep our ear attentive to His Word and the guiding of His Spirit, His Spirit changes us and transforms us more and more, giving us the power to obey. As we walk with His Spirit, He empowers us to obey so that we will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Brothers and sisters, these are practical, everyday encouragements at the ways Jesus helps us against temptation. So take courage as you face temptation this week. Set your minds on these truths. Feed on the strength and their hope. Keep your eyes on your brother, your fellow human who is also the Son of God, your Savior Jesus Christ who suffered obediently and now is the perfect high priest who represents you before God, takes away your sins and credits His righteousness to you through faith. And so we come to the end of this passage. And where does it leave us? It leaves us marveling at the wisdom and the goodness of God that His plan of salvation would be to bridge this gap between God and man by sending the Son of God to become man to suffer and die, to break the power of death, to forgive sin, and to help us in the face of suffering and temptation. And so as we come to the end of this passage, we can't help but be amazed to marvel at the goodness of God and his love for us, that this would be his rescue plan. And we can't help but be amazed at Jesus, this great founder of our salvation, who suffered and died, that we might be set free, forgiven, and brought as his many sons and daughters into glory with him. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, what a great rescue plan. What a perfect plan of salvation. One that still boggles our minds when we think that God would bridge the gap by becoming man and going through suffering and death, that we might be redeemed, that we might be brought back to glory as his children. I pray that the joy of this, the amazement of this, would encourage our hearts and that the help of Jesus, our older brother, would be with us this week as we face temptation and that we would look to him and be encouraged and strengthened, setting our eyes on him as the founder of our salvation, our hope each and every day. We thank you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen.